Well, good morning, friends. Uh, most of you know uh, we've been going through the book of Acts for the last, like, two years, and, uh, and we should be on track to hit chapter 28 this morning, having finished chapter 27 last Sunday, but actually that's, that's not what we're going to do today, um, because I felt like there was another sermon in Acts chapter 27 that I alluded to last week, and we're going to look at it this week, so if you would, please turn there to Acts chapter 27. Uh, I'm going to move the treasure chest over here because I'm going to kick it. That is not part of the treasure. Just to say, okay. Um, this week, well, last week we looked at the narrative of Paul's shipwreck, okay, and, and how God is with us in the storms. But this week, we're going to see what God's word can teach us about leadership in crisis. And before we go any further, I want to define those two words. Uh, first, leadership is both an ability and a practice, okay? In essence, it's getting people to watch, listen, and follow. Now, bad leadership has no concern for the followers and no direction. Good leadership cares about the followers, takes their, takes their followers somewhere that's good for the followers, and lets them know where they're going. Great leadership not only loves the followers and has a destination in mind, but gets all the followers there, too. Now, a crisis, on the other hand, is typically a traumatic experience in which events happen that are outside of our immediate control, and some of these crises are self-inflicted, and some are a result of, of what seems like chance, although, you know, I don't believe in chance, or, or other people's decisions. So then, what is leadership in crisis? There's at least two ways to view this phrase, and both of them are apparent in this story from Acts 27, one way to look at it is that leadership itself is in crisis and is thus incapable of managing an external crisis. So in our story last week, we saw that this was the case with the captain of the ship and its sailors and, and to some extent the soldiers on board. They were so discouraged and defeated by the storm that they felt completely hopeless and, and they'd basically given up. But the other way to view the phrase is to highlight the people who do provide leadership in a crisis, even if it's not necessarily what's expected of them. Other great examples from Scripture might be Joseph in Egypt, Esther in Persia, or Nehemiah in Jerusalem. But today's example is the Apostle Paul. Does anyone remember what his circumstances were when he was on that ship? He was a prisoner. That's right. He was being transferred from Jerusalem to Rome to go on trial before Caesar. Now, in society today, with the unfortunate exception of pre-born infants, there's probably no one that's, that's lower in social status than a prisoner. So you would think that Paul, being a prisoner, should have had little or no influence on the people around them. Of course, we know that not to be the case. But through this narrative in Acts 27, we see he ended up exercising a lot of influence. And so we're going to see that progression today through the four times that Paul actually speaks in this chapter. And before we read what he says, though, let's, let's very quickly discuss authority, and not just any authority, but spiritual authority. And not just spiritual authority, but true spiritual authority. What constitutes that? We're going to go through this pretty quickly, and then... We'll see how the Apostle Paul 
demonstrates exercise of this authority in the rest of, uh, in his words from Acts 27. You know what, why don't we pray? Um, let's do that. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you will give us wisdom, help us to be discerning as we look at these scriptures. I pray, Father, as I pretty much always do, God, that we will be good soil so that the seeds that are planted will take root and bear fruit. We pray, Father, that the fruit that we bear will be good fruit that honors you and honors your son and that, that helps to, to promote your kingdom here. Father, I ask that everyone today uh, is able to, I, I pray they got their coffee, they're able to stay awake. I pray that they're able to, uh, to hone in and really engage your word because, God, I think that we have a lot to learn from Paul. And there's some great stuff here, so please just help us to stay focused and um, help me to stay focused. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, let's pray that God will open our eyes. It will be like Paul. Where, where, does, where does true spiritual authority come from? God, right. You know, as a culture, I think we can all agree, we, we've observed horrific abuses by those who claim to have spiritual authority. And part of the reason for that is, is that most of those people probably have no business being in those positions, these, these people that are, that are doing these, these abuses. In a large part of the problem is that people who allege that they have spiritual authority many times have it conferred on them by people who also have no business conferring that authority. And hopefully we can see that, that true spiritual authority isn't conferred, but rather it's earned. Now here's what I mean by this, okay? Just because a person has received a title or a position does not mean that they are fulfilling the requirements of the title or position. A good example of this, or a bad example perhaps, Dr. Kevorkian, right? Makes no sense. Did you know that every elected official in the federal government has to swear on the Bible to uphold the Constitution of the United States? How do you feel like that's going? It's bad enough when authority is incorrectly vested in civic positions and in titles, but it's far worse when this approach is applied to spiritual authority. You know, even though pastors typically have to go through an ordination process in order to be considered church leaders, if we're going by any qualities other than what's listed in Scripture, we are adding to, or, or worse, subtracting from, what God says is befitting a spiritual leader. And that's why I put an asterisk next to conferred, because obviously the exception being God, since God actually does confer spiritual authority on people. However, with regard to man, true spiritual authority to an extent must be earned. Now, friends, it took a while. I want you to know this. It took a while to settle on that word earned. And I struggle with it a little bit, right? Because I don't want thinking, anybody think, I mean, obviously we can't earn our salvation. We don't earn God's favor. That's, that's entirely by grace. I don't want y'all thinking that, that a person earns spiritual authority in any way from God as though God owed them something. You know, but in the sense that a person on whom God confers spiritual authority, it's identified by the church because it has been observed in the person. And a person earns that authority only in the sense that he has shown the, the fruit of the Spirit in his life. 
shown a God-given propensity for spiritual leadership and shown that he has a heart for, for being an under-shepherd of God's people. You know, this is how we choose elders in this church. All of those things are gifts from God. They are all graces, and they can apply to a person of any status. You may know this, but in the, the first century church, there are many elders in the church who were slaves in their modern, in their, their daily life. Your status in the world is irrelevant when it comes to spiritual leadership. So I want to say this. Pastor is not a title, okay? It is a description. It actually means shepherd, if you didn't know that. So, so because, just because a person is called pastor so-and-so doesn't mean they are one, okay? Any more than, than using preferred pronouns makes a man a woman or vice versa. It has to do with the ethos, the, the earned credibility of the person. So listen, don't call me or anyone else pastor unless you're observing an imperfect but at least a Christ-like trajectory in their life. It is not a title. It is a description. Secondly, true spiritual authority, excuse me, isn't inherited, it's inherent. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Just because a person is connected to any other Christian by genetics or by relationship, that has no bearing on whether that person has been vested with any sort of spiritual authority. Like in a monarchy, okay, a person can become the ruler of a country simply by virtue of being born. Right? That is not the way in the church. Spiritual authority is not connected to outward succession at all. It's revealed that a person has an inherent gift of spiritual leadership within because it's, it's a grace that God has blessed them with. Now, that's not to say that, that it won't be grown or developed. I mean, it absolutely ought to be. And it also, that's not to say it'll never be dormant at times, because we all have ups and downs. But leadership is an innate quality that God grants to some of his people as a spiritual gift. We see this in, in Romans 12, 8. It is a grace from the Lord, a charis from God. Now, by the way, the word inherent means uh, Innate, it, it's not to be confused with inerrant, okay, which means without error. No human being is without error. There's only been one. And one of the most dangerous doctrines that people can buy into is that their preferred spiritual authority is always correct when they are alleging to speak for the Lord. And that's why the Bereans, it says, were nobler than the other Jews. Remember that? Because, because they weighed what they were hearing, the apostolic teaching that they were hearing, they were weighing it to the scriptures, comparing it to God's word to say, is this guy telling the truth? You need to be doing that. We all need to be doing that. In everything, we must compare what our leaders say to what scripture says. We, we can't expect perfection, but we can expect, we must expect consistency, and an obvious striving for faithfulness, okay? You should be looking for this. I hope everyone's on the same page. Um, with that, let's get into Paul's four statements from Acts 27. Um, by the way, why are we studying this? I, I, I believe that all of us, every single one, has some degree of, of spiritual authority 
that God has set up, whether it's now or in our future, that we need to exercise in our own lives. And in, in, in every case, in every case, it's related to what Scripture says and how we respond to it, both privately and, and publicly. So, so today, our mission is to see what we can learn about how to live out whatever level or area of spiritual authority that God has given to each of us individually. So our first quote from Paul is in verse 10. Okay? As they were planning to set sail in spite of it being late in the season, you remember Paul said to his captors, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of, of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. We talked about this last week. Of course, they didn't listen because he was a persona non grata in their eyes. But, but even the, I mean, you remember Julius, Paul's centurion. He thought very highly of Paul. But he still didn't think that Paul would know better than the captain of the ship, right? Or the ship's owner. And for good reason. Those guys are professionals. Well, the fact is, if you really look at this, Paul didn't exactly call it on the money at first, Right? We know this because God graciously allowed everyone on the ship to survive. But, but Paul's worst-case scenario warning, this was not an actual prophecy. We see he must not have been speaking by the Holy Spirit here simply because it did not occur the way he said. But his prophecy, so to speak, or his, his, uh, his intuition was at least partly correct. He may not have been speaking by the Holy Spirit, but he was using common sense. And I think that we also... We ought to warn people before the crisis comes based on what we know. Now, we as Christians, a lot, of, a lot of what we do when we warn people about, say, the direction society is going is based on an understanding of the times, right? It's from, it's from observing the culture. It's from reading up on history. If you don't know, <coughs> excuse me, if you don't know history, you're doomed to what? Repeat it. That's right. We need to study history. Most importantly, we need to be studying, we need to be pouring over the scriptures. The plunging of our, of our national morals and our collective intelligence, that's been foreseen for a really, really long time. And those who've been paying attention are calling things before they happen. You know, in 2015, when the Supreme Court determined that, that states no longer had the right to not recognize same-sex marriage. The people who said that it opened the door to further depravity were treated like chicken little. Do you remember that? Oh, it's not going to turn into something else. It's not going to become something else. But look at where we are less than a decade later. People are literally trying to legalize pedophilia and not just on the fringe. There are mainstream movements to do this. Y'all, there are drag shows being hosted by alleged churches. This depravity is happening at a breakneck pace. This wickedness, this, this downward spiral. If you read the latter half of Romans 1, you see this is all common to secular culture. It's all happened before. And it keeps happening for the same reasons. People keep turning away from the creator and worshiping creation. In the case of these preferred pronouns, it's me worshiping myself, right? I get to de de determine my own reality, my own identity. No, I'm sorry, folks. God did that for you. 
So don't feel like you've got to keep your mouth shut if you have an idea of what you think is coming down the pike, okay? Even though Paul was, was partially wrong, he was partially right, too. And this may have given him a, a little credibility after the crisis actually hit. We're going to see more of that in a minute. Uh, let's look at verse 21 now and following. Paul says, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, he says, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. What a gracious Lord. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on an island. Some island, you know. There's one more thought before we get into the, the, the entree here. Is how Paul starts off this speech. Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> right? We talked about this last week. But there are times where I told you so can be appropriate. Honestly, God does it often through Scripture, right? He says it a lot. He says it through his, his prophets, and sometimes, sometimes it's a good idea to remind people that we warned them. Now you think, oh, that sounds kind of petty, Mark. I don't know. But, but listen, it, it, it can be petty, okay? If you're doing it for the wrong reason, if it's just, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's silliness, all right? But if you're saying, listen, I told you so because you're trying to point people to the fact that you've got some foresight, some wisdom from the Lord, then therefore they have a reason to listen to you, right? And that's, that's what Paul does here. So, look at verses 21 through 26. What is Paul actually telling the other men on the ship? He is sharing with them what God shared with him. Okay? And I think that we, like Paul, should be able to proclaim God's promises too. We should be able to proclaim God's promises. You know, in, in his case, Paul explained this, this angelic messenger from God had spoken with him, and he, he included the content of that announcement, which was what? It was, it was that this God, whom Paul found trustworthy and, and faithful, was going to preserve everyone on the ship. This was good news. Some of y'all already know where I'm going with this. This was good news. And likewise, we are entrusted with good news. We're supposed to share it. What are we talking about here? The gospel, amen. The gospel, the good news, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul told us that the essential message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and that he was buried and rose from the dead and that all of this was a fulfillment of what he had promised in Scripture, and it was backed up by eyewitnesses. It's through believing on Jesus that we receive credit for his righteousness, for his death, his payment for our sins. We receive credit for his sinless life that he lived. We ought to let people know about this wonderful salvation that we've been given. We ought to be willing to tell people 
that God has promised salvation to anyone who will repent and turn to Him, placing faith in Christ. But in in sharing the good news, we, we shouldn't neglect the fact that there is bad news too. You know, for instance, as Paul said, the ship is toast. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. But he said, you know, basically the ship is going down, y'all. If we're going to tell people that they receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus, we should also let them know it's not going to be easy. Life doesn't become magically simple upon being baptized into Christ or upon putting your faith in Christ. In fact, sometimes it gets harder. You know, one of the, one of the dumbest things I think that we, can, that we can tell people that is that everything is going to be hunky-dory after you accept Christ and start following him. That is just not, it's provably false, okay? Most of us, I think, can go, yeah, actually, my life got a lot harder. Why? Because you're not just floating along with the current anymore. You know what floats along with the current? Things that aren't alive. You start swimming when you are, when you become a Christian. It's one of the things I love about that little scene at the beginning of The Chosen where the fish start turning around and going the other way. You're swimming against the current. Some fish are just downstream headed to destruction. Some fish are just sitting there like, well, you know, I'm basically dead. I'm just going to float along. That's going to get me somewhere. Yeah, it will, to the the path to destruction. You must swim upstream. You must push against the current. But see, God provides us, I love this, with both the desire and the strength to do this. Do you know that? Do you know that it is God who both wills He wills us to both will and to work according to his grace. You know, even if we feel overwhelmed, it's better to to expect life to be tough here but blissful in eternity with Christ as opposed to, you know, simpler here but horrifying in eternity without him. Now, you might, you might hear this, and, and you might rightly wonder, you know, well, okay, but I'm not Paul. <laughs> so, so what if no one listens to me? Hey, chances are you're probably not going to be on a literal ship that's sinking in a storm, except maybe you two. And <laughs> hope, hopefully not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where everyone has, has given up hope, and they're desperate to hear any good news. But listen, friends, even though people try to ignore this fact, okay, every single one of us, everyone is on a sinking ship. Think about this. On, in this life, you are on a sinking ship because eventually, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Every single one of us is going to die unless Jesus comes back first, in which case this body is still not going to heaven going to be the new body. Just think about that. We're on a sinking ship. That realization hits different people at different times. One of the blessings, I'm I'm just going to say it because it's true. One of the blessings about cancer, one of the blessings about a terminal disease 
as you're reminded of your mortality. You're reminded that you, God doesn't owe you even one second. And people in this room know people who God used the gift of a terminal disease to bring them to Christ. Just remember that. But we are on a sinking ship. And on top of that, there, there's people, people that don't know the Lord chase all kinds of means by which they hope to find fulfillment. But most people, I think, we, we, we come to a point where we recognize the hopelessness of our situation. And if your eyes are open to it and your spirit is sensitive to it, then God will provide opportunities for you to proclaim his hope, his promises to people who will receive it. And that's, that's what we're, we're seeing here. Paul is sharing God's promises with people and they're responding. Let's go to verse 31. Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Do you remember the context? Some of the soldiers, or excuse me, the sailors, at this point, they decided they were going to sneak off, right? Like, ah, oh, we're going to go put down some anchors. And then they went over to the lifeboat, remember, so that they could hop in and, and get away. And Paul's like, uh-uh, can't do that. Don't let them do that. If they leave, we're, all, we're, we're not going to make it. Paul knew that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the right way out. He made it clear to the centurion Julius that there was only one way. Listen, listen to me. There was only one way to make it out of this dire situation where everybody was going to make it, and that was to stick, listen, to stick with the plan of salvation that God had laid out for them. You hear me? Are you hearing this? Stick with the plan. And like Paul, we Christians need to show spiritual leadership by protecting the way of salvation. And this is super important in our relativistic culture. God has provided only one means by which a person may be saved, and that is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He has provided only one mode by which a person can be saved, and that is by grace through faith. Your works cannot save you. Being a, a good person with a good heart can't save you. Trusting in a false religion can't save you. E even, even the right religion can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And as the church, we must refuse to compromise this truth of salvation. <clears throat> to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not just referring to false religions and cults and, and explicit Christ deniers. I, there are some very dangerous doctrines and behaviors springing up within the so-called church. You know, for sure, the, the, there are a lot of areas where, where opinions can safely differ when it comes to theology. You know, we have a lot of difference of opinion in a lot of things in this church, but we know the gospel. You've got to know the gospel. The gospel, God's good news, is about who Jesus is and what God did through him. And as soon as you start conflating the less important things with the gospel, you are in danger. I mean, guys, inclusivity and justice are important issues when they're currently, you know, correctly defined. 
but they are not the gospel. Politics and moral values have an essential place in our culture, but they are not the gospel. Neither activism nor patriotism is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He died for your sins and rose again as promised. Do you believe this? Do you? Then your life ought to be drastically different from how it was the moment that you realized this. You should cling to this truth of the gospel like a drowning man clinging to a life preserver, and you should insist that everyone else recognize it for what it is. As a good spiritual leader, Paul didn't compromise. In fact, he said, he wrote this in Galatians 1.8. He said, if we or anyone else, even an angel from heaven, hmm, preach to you a different gospel than the one we've already preached, may he be eternally condemned. That'll preach. Friends, guard, guard the truth of the gospel jealously. Guard it in your life. Guard it in the life of the church. And refuse, friends, to let it either be diluted or poisoned. For again, it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Don't treat anything else as that which saves, okay? I mean, as hard, guys, we must try. I believe this. The church is called to, to, to strive to protect the sanctity of marriage and to fight against racism and to help the orphan and the widow, you know, and as nobly as we might crusade against the, the perversions trying to destroy our children's souls, we must keep the good news front and center because that's what saves. That's what saves. Don't lose sight of that. One more quick point uh, on this. Is that Paul, he apparently didn't bother trying to step in front of the soldiers to intervene. Instead, he used his influence, right? He went to Julius, the centurion who immediately took care of the problem with his soldiers. You think Paul could have stood and faced off against all those soldiers, all those sailors? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. And I think this is a valuable lesson for us because, because I think it reminds us, it, it can be appropriate to use secular authority to accomplish what we believe God is leading us to do. Now, please, please don't misunderstand me. As, as Don't think I'm saying we have to do everything through civic authority, okay? Nor... Nor should we only do that which is acceptable to our secular government. Okay? History, as well as the word of God itself, tells us that there are times when civil disobedience is necessary in order to obey God. And there are times where we can use the laws or the powers that be to our advantage. For, you know, in the United States of America, the First Amendment guarantees us the right to the free exercise of religion which some churches had to appeal during the, 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 the pandemic. They had to appeal to that just to keep the doors open. And as long as it's legal in this country for us to assemble and worship the Lord, we should make use of every law at our disposal. If it ever becomes illegal in our nation to assemble for worship, we're going to do it anyway because that's what God commands of us. Okay, I'm not saying this on the live stream to be defiant. I'm saying it because this is, this is the truth. This is how it must be. That said, God fundamentally created government to protect and serve people in a way that meets physical needs. 
while the church exists to protect and serve people in a way that meets spiritual needs. And when they are both working properly according to their design as God intended, church and government actually complement one another. But under fallen mankind, unfortunately, we're often adversaries. But when that occurs, remember this. Sometimes spiritual leadership means working with secular authorities in order to accomplish what God wants, and other times it means politely and peacefully rejecting their overreaches. We've got to be on God's side. That's the only side that's safe. Okay. Anyway, um, that was kind of off the subject. We'll get back to this last saying of Paul, starting in verse 33. Uh, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. You know, one of the things that stands out here in such a beautiful way is how Paul obviously deeply cared for the other people on that ship. You know, he he didn't let their hopelessness bring him down. Instead, he he shines a, a bright light into their dejection in order to lift them up. And this is instructive to us because just like Paul, we ought to be committed to promoting the welfare of others. True spiritual leadership at its essence is serving the needs of others, especially in helping them to to learn to trust Christ and become more like him. That, That is the primary role of a spiritual leader. It's not to grow a ginormous you know, mega church, it's, it's not to amass a huge following, it's not to, to make oneself feel important or become a household name, but rather it is to take everyone that God gives you along with you on that journey that God has given you and, and help them become who God wants them to be. That is your charge, that's your, that's your, your privilege, your honor, your joy to bring people on the journey with you that God has given you. In the case of Paul, they're, they're primarily, at this moment, they were, they were working toward physical survival. But for us, for us, most of the time, our goal is to bring people into a state of spiritual connection to the Lord and to greater levels of holiness. In other words, we make disciples. And like Paul, we must be willing to encourage them. Remember, friends, the, the word encourage literally means to give someone courage. All of us need this. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. Many people in the world today, I think, live in a perpetual state of discouragement, whether it's due to to circumstances or ignorance or disenfranchisement or simply because they're dealing with a crisis of faith. You know, even even Christians often struggle with, with feeling depressed or beat down by life. So we ought to encourage one another. It's interesting to me that, that, that Paul encouraged everyone to eat a little food to gain strength. You know, we, we ought to do the, the same thing on a spirit level, encouraging one another uh, on a regular basis to take spiritual food, to be in the Word, to be in prayer with the Lord, in communion with God, you know, to, to gather together with other Christians for the purpose of worshiping the Lord and for fellowshipping with one another. This, this, this is spiritual food for us to reflect together on God's goodness in our lives. And then while it's not specifically stated in Paul's speech, uh, we learned in the next verse 
that he also thanked God for the food and then he took some himself. We need to remember that it is important for us to set the example for the people in our lives whom God has given us to serve and protect. If you're not in prayer and you're not in the word, you don't have a whole lot of credibility to tell other people to do that, do you? That's really the concept I want to land this plane on, okay? Whether you realize it or not, nearly everyone in this room has at least one person. Most of us have several, but you have at least one person that looks to you as an example of spiritual leadership. You know, to to personalize it, each of you has someone who looks to you as an example. Now, that means whether you want it or not, (laughs) you're, you're... a spiritual leader, you have that role in someone's life, and you must not neglect that wonderful privilege and responsibility. It's not likely anyone in here is going to be another Apostle Paul, but you don't know that. And you don't know how God is going to use you to further his kingdom and lead more and more people to salvation. Because remember, friends, that's the whole point of living on this planet, right? That's why we're here is to love God and love other people. And what better way to love other people than to share the good news of Christ with them? It's to love God and love others. We do that, as our mission statement says, by serving the least and by reaching the lost. So I want to ask you, how are you going to do that today? I want to encourage you to to take your, your bulletin insert and, and every one of you, please, write down the name. If you don't have a bulletin insert, put it in your phone, in your calendar, do it somewhere. Write down the name of one person that you're going to talk to this week about the Lord, especially if you know they don't know him yet. Just one name. Begin to pray for that person today. And if you chicken out this week, then pray that God will give you the chance next week. I do believe he will provide an opportunity He is faithful to do that. If we ask him, bring someone into my life to share the gospel, he will. Half the time you'll have no idea that that's what's going on until later. But he does. He's faithful. He does it. Start praying for that person today and start praying that your conversation with them will be salty and that it will bear fruit. Now, I say that I know most of the people in this room are professing Christians, but I also know some of you have not professed your faith publicly in Jesus Christ yet. Some of you have not been baptized yet according to the command of the Lord. And so I want to invite you to do that today, friend. You know, we, every, every Sunday we have a slide that comes up and it just says, hey, this is some stuff that you're invited to do. We invite you to receive Christ as Lord and be baptized according to his word. The Bible says, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, he said, if anyone believes, he said, he has eternal life. You need to be taking these steps. This is what God commands you to do. He says, repent of your sins and be baptized. He says, confess me before man and I will confess you before the angels who are in heaven. He says, you know, uh, walk in obedience, walk in faithfulness. He tells us, church, he says, make disciples. He says, by doing what? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them not just everything I've commanded you, but teaching them to what? Observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, he says, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's for every person who's making disciples. He's with you. Don't be scared. He's with you. 